Thank you for joining us. My name is Katie Heinley, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod. If you're the generous sort, you can be like John, Robin, Janet, Ben, Walker, and Garrett and support the podcast on Patreon with either a recurring or one-time donation. This helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. Today, I'm interviewing Zach Jackson. Zach is a fish biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in White River, Arizona. He works with tribes in Arizona on native fish conservation, Apache trout, and Gila top minnow recovery in particular, as well as sport fish management. Zach received bachelor's degrees in natural resources management and zoology fish and wildlife management from North Dakota State University, and his master's degree from Iowa State University, where he studied the relationships among common carp populations sport fish population dynamics, and limnological conditions across 132 lakes and reservoirs in Iowa in response to deteriorating water quality and concomitant reductions in quality sport fish populations. After graduate school, he worked on Chinook salmon habitat restoration and white surgeon research and monitoring for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Lodi, California, before moving to the Arizona Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office in 2017. Outside of work, Zach enjoys marine and terrestrial protein collection, hiking, wildlife photography, and mitigating the destruction caused by his two feral daughters. All right, welcome to the podcast, Zach. All right, thank you. So today we're going to be focusing in on your work with Apache trout. And to start, I thought it might be beneficial to get a little bit of baseline information on the species for people that might be like me that don't know a lot about them. And so first, where do you even find Apache trout? Um, You can only find Apache trout in the White Mountains of East Central Arizona. With one little caveat, there is also one refuge population in a tributary to the Colorado River in north central Arizona, but the core native range, the entire native range is in the White Mountains of East Central Arizona. Historically, the species occupied headwater streams in the White and Black Rivers that are tributary to the Salt River, as well as headwater streams in the Little Colorado River Basin above about 6,000 feet. Awesome. And as far as I understand, Apache trout are in the Oncorhynchus genus. So how do they fit in with Pacific trout in general? So are they more closely related to cutthroat or rainbows or how do they work into that? Apache trout, Gila trout, and Mexican golden trout. They're closely related to a to an ancestral rainbow trout lineage and are considered one of the most divergent groups of trout with some of the longest isolation from all evolutionary lines of, of rainbow trout. Apaches and Gila's are believed to have derived from a common ancestor that gained access to the Gila River in Arizona from the Gulf of Mexico sometime during the mid to late Pleistocene. Very cool. And then if you were going to go out to Arizona and try to find Apache trout, what would make up really high quality habitat or the best spots to look for Apache trout? Well, like other trout, Apache trout require cold, clean water, temperatures, you know, generally below 70 degrees Fahrenheit. They like complex habitat with both in-stream and overhead cover, and they need coarse, clean gravel for spawning. Right now, all current populations of Apache trout inhabit headwater streams. Most of them, the lower extents, are right around 8,000 feet in elevation. Uh, Historically, We think that the lower elevation limits of Apache trout were probably between six and 7,000 feet. 
And we do have some populations today with occupied extents in, in those lower elevation ranges. Like other trout and most stream fish, um, Apache trout also need a suitable, you know, stream flow regime to support all life state needs and enough occupied habitat length to, you know, support a minimum population size and, and maintain genetic diversity. But if you were to be looking for them in, in Arizona, um, you, you need to get into the White Mountains for sure. Cool. And with that, I was uh, trying to read into Apache Chat a little bit ahead of the interview with some of those materials you sent along. And I was actually kind of surprised that their thermal tolerance, maybe it's just because they're located in the Southwest US, which tends to be a little bit warmer than maybe where I'm used to in Montana. But it seemed like they had a pretty wide thermal tolerance compared to some other cold water species. Would you all consider them a temperature generalist or more of a specialist and they just happen to live in warmer places? You know, we consider Apache trout a cold water obligate. There certainly has been some research that's shown that they can and do occupy and, and may survive temperatures over uh, 20 degrees C, but the populations we have that are thriving occupy streams that are rarely going to exceed, you know, 17 degrees C yeah. or, or the low 60s. Okay. Gotcha. And then the Apache trout is currently listed as threatened on the Endangered Species Act. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So I wanted to move into talking about their, what went into their listing and where we're at now. So what were some of the threats or stressors that led to Apache trout being listed in the first place? Watershed alterations relating to forestry, timber harvest in particular, livestock grazing, reservoir construction, agriculture in some cases, road constructions, and even mining were identified as early causes for reductions of Apache trout habitat. At least as important, introductions of non-native trout, brooks, browns, cutthroats, and rainbows led to competition for resources and predation, and then hybridization in the case of rainbows and cutthroats. Yeah. A quick sidebar. Is it pretty difficult to tell rainbow and Apache trout hybrids apart? Or like, do you need genetics to tell if they're a hybrid or can you tell in the field? So sadly, we're not very good at identifying hybrids in the field. And we didn't even really know that until recently. Mm -hmm. I think until a couple of years ago, we Apache trout recovery partners thought we were pretty good at field identification of Apache trout hybrids. But then we sent some samples in to confirm our calls in the field and received results back that did not align. Generally speaking, we were hearing that fish we thought were hybrids were actually pure, which of course is good news, but it really caused us to rethink things. And there were also some limitations with the genetic results we were getting back and some inferences we weren't able to draw. So last year we got started on a project to sharpen both our field and laboratory tools for identifying pure and hybrid Apache trout. If I can take a minute to describe this project. Yeah. We're going at this from a couple of different directions. First, we haven't had any range-wide pure Apache trout genetic samples to compare potential hybrids to. So that was limiting, you know, some of what we could tease out. Mm -hmm. So we went out and we collected samples from 
six populations of Apache trout that we're confident remain pure. And then we also wanted some first-generation hybrids to sample so that we could better identify them in the lab as well as in the field and, you know, lead to some refinement in our lab techniques for informing things like how long ago a hybridization event occurred, whether or not fish were back-crossing to pure Apaches, some things along those lines. So we didn't know of anywhere where we could find any F1 hybrids in the wild. So we made them. We worked with a couple of national fish hatcheries, produced some F1 rainbow trout, Apache trout hybrids, and then transferred eyed eggs to our genetics lab in Dexter, New Mexico uh, for rearing and later sampling. We took detailed photographs of all sample donor fish in the wild and the ones that we created in hopes of being able to improve our field identification of pure and hybrid Apache trout in the future. It's probably going to be at least another six months before we have the genetic analyses completed for this work and even longer before we've made what sense we can out of the photographs we collected. But I'm, I'm confident we'll greatly improve our lab techniques for evaluating hybridization in wild populations from this work. Mm -hmm. And I'm hopeful we can make significant strides in field identification of hybrids as well. Ultimately, we'd like to be able in certain circumstances to selectively remove either hybrid or pure fish from invaded populations. Whereas right now we sort of only have the nuclear option, which right. is, you know, apply a aside and start over. Yeah. Very cool. I know that's been a issue, especially for, I think West Slope cutthroat and rainbow trout hybrids are really hard to identify in the field as well. So I was curious how much of an issue it was for Apache trout as well. So that's a cool project you all have going on with the history of the Apache trout being listed. If I remember correctly from when I was reading, they're listed as endangered in 1967. And then in 1975, they, that switched to threatened. And so I was curious with those listings, what are the benchmarks set to eventually delist Apache trout from that threatened status? And how are those determined? So the recovery criteria are there needs to be a habitat sufficient to provide for all life functions at all life stages for 30 self-sustaining discrete populations of pure Apache trout. And those need to be protected through plans and agreements with land and resource management entities. Otherwise, we need to have appropriate angling regulations in place to protect Apache trout populations and agreements in place among state and federal agencies and, and tribes to prevent and control disease, parasites, pathogens, things like that that may threaten Apache trout. Mm -hmm. In terms of how those were determined, it's not entirely clear. By 1976, there were thought to be 14 genetically pure populations of Apache trout left. It's not entirely clear how 30 populations were identified, but I think it was a mix of a nice round number yeah. and thought to be near, but not quite the maximum that we could conceivably, you know, attain, I guess. Mm -hmm. The other recovery criteria are, you know, really just pretty basic steps to ensure that management plans and agreements are in place to keep Apache trout population stable and protected in a delisted status. Right. So it's been, I'm not going to do the math. It's been quite a while since they've been listed as threatened. And I was curious what conservation and management actions have been most beneficial since 1975 to the recovery of Apache trout. Yeah. You know, and I, I missed one significant thing in terms of a stressor that 
caused them to be listed. And, and that was overfishing. Um, mm-hmm. That was certainly occurring in the early 20th century. So in terms of the most important conservation and management actions, I, th- I think the white mountain Apache tribes actions to protect all wild Apache trout populations and their habitats are probably the sing- you know the single most critical actions that have been taken. Uh, they closed all streams that still can uh, still contained Apache trout to sport fishing in 1955, and that was 12 years before the species was initially listed as endangered under the Endangered Species Preservation Act, the precursor to the Endangered mm-hmm. Species Act. They also developed watershed management plans and implemented actions to cease or greatly reduce impacts from road construction, logging, grazing, and other activities in the watersheds. And then after that, non-native trout management through altered stocking practices, construction of conservation barriers, and non-native trout removal from recovery habitat are the actions that have been you know, most critical and, and beneficial for Apache trout recovery. That actually brought up a question that I didn't include in the list, but I was curious about what what are the partners to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that have all been working on Apache trout recovery? You mentioned the White Mountain Apache tribe, and I was curious who have been the main players in Apache trout recovery so far. So the White Mountain Apache tribe is, their lands are home to the vast majority of Apache trout populations. So they're the you know, single most critical partner in all of this. And, and they're the group that had the foresight to, you know, take protective measures and actions early on mm-hmm. or, you know, earlier than, than anybody else really. So the White Mountain Apache tribe in particular, their game and fish department is the most prominent recovery partner. And my office's role, the, the Fish and Wildlife Service works really in an assistance role to the mm-hmm. tribe in making Apache trout conservation and recovery happen. And then other recovery partners, also very important, the Arizona Game and Fish Department and U.S. Forest Service in particular. Trout Unlimited has also been involved in Apache trout recovery. That's great to hear. It's such a collaborative effort. I was curious, what is the current status of Apache trout? So how close are they to being delisted? Apache trout are currently listed as as threatened. A five-year status review is currently underway, and we expect to hear about the outcome from that process late this year or early next year. Again, my office primarily assists the White Mountain Apache tribe in Apache trout monitoring and recovery efforts, although we do also work with Arizona Game and Fish Department and the U.S. Forest Service on populations that they manage. So we get to see and hear about how all Apache trout populations are doing. And we're seeing a lot of positive improvement in many populations across the range. We do currently have 30 peer populations of Apache trout, although one of those is outside of the historic range and and not all populations are robust, but we saw major increases in adult population abundance in a few populations that we monitored last year during 2021. We've completed two brown trout eradication efforts during the last two years, and we're in the process of replacing 10 conservation barriers. So there's definitely a lot to be pretty excited and positive about with Apache trout. I'm not sure when delisting will happen, but it certainly seems like we're approaching that point. It's always exciting to hear somewhat positive stories in relation to the Endangered Species Act, because I feel like we 
hear a lot of the negative ones. So. Yeah, exactly. And these projects or your work on Apache Trout has also led to several related research projects that you mentioned when we were talking about this ahead of time. And so I thought we'd maybe start with your stream length bias paper. And so I was curious first, what spurred this research question? And then what are the preliminary results? Because we should mention they're not published yet, correct? Right, not published yet. So let's see. We completed a revised population monitoring protocol for Apache trout in 2017 that essentially has us monitoring 20% of occupied stream extent in each recovery stream once every five years. We accomplished this by conducting three pass depletion electrofishing surveys on two 100 meter reaches for every kilometer of stream. So after we established the protocol, we used National Hydrography Dataset flow lines to establish baseline sampling sites for each population. And then we went out and started surveying. Long story short, we found that the NHD flow lines did a pretty poor job of imitating the streams we were working in, particularly in our lower gradient meadow reaches. And this isn't particularly surprising, but it caused us to wonder how these errors might propagate throughout our population estimation procedure. Mm -hmm. And we were surprised by the results we found there. So what we did, we used high resolution aerial imagery to measure some stream reaches, measure stream length in those reaches and assess and quantify stream length bias versus the NHD flow lines we were using before. As expected, stream lengths measured using NHD flow lines underestimated true length revealed by the aerial imagery by quite a bit. In in this case, we found on average 23%. And this bias, of course, higher in the meadow versus forested habitats. Mm -hmm. The observed bias led to streamwide estimates of Apache trout abundance that were only 62% of those made with the more realistic aerial imagery based stream measurements. So that was a bigger deal than we thought we'd find for sure. So essentially the population estimates were lower than they should have been because the stream lengths were shorter than they are in real life. Yep. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. I feel like that's fairly applicable to a lot of management scenarios, but I was curious from your perspective or from your the author's perspective, how do you think other research and management projects might benefit from the results of this study? Well, I do think that, you know, any researchers evaluating abundance of stream fishes using a process similar to ours, you know, subsampling reaches and extrapolating to larger occupied extents, I think they should be interested in reviewing how accurate their stream length estimates are, and more importantly, how any biases might be affecting management decisions derived from those population estimates. Yeah. Do you think this is most applicable to ESA or Endangered Species Act type work, or do you think it's a pretty broad management question? I think this work is broadly applicable to any stream fisheries management scenario, you know, where management decisions are resulting in in whole or in part from abundance estimates derived essentially from subsampling stream reaches and scaling them up to the stream level. I think that's really the only question is if there's a management decision to be to be made, whether it's ESA or sport fish focused or something else entirely, I think it's applicable and important. Yeah, absolutely. And then another of the papers that you sent me that's uh, in the process of being published was about 
looking at uh, climate resiliency of Apache trout into the future. Could you give a quick overview of that paper? Sure. So this paper was the result of analyses we conducted as we were completing the Apache trout species status assessment during 2020 and 2021. As part of the SSA, we were tasked with projecting future conditions for individual recovery populations. And one of the threats that we discussed a lot throughout the SSA process was changing climate conditions. One of the things we wanted to explore and try to understand was how projected climate change might influence Apache trout. And we chose to use a species distribution modeling approach. Yeah, I was I was actually really enjoying reading through that because I did a species distribution model somewhat similar for my senior thesis. So it was really cool to see it applied on Apache trout. So with that work, uh, what factors did you find had the most effect on Apache trout resiliency into the future? So currently, um, habitat designated for Apache trout recovery is upstream of protective fish barriers. I've been calling them uh, conservation barriers. Mm -hmm. And these are located far enough upstream that many habitat patches that are currently occupied by the species are actually projected to remain suitable into the 2080s. And we take that to mean that their resiliency is primarily limited by the size of the patch that they already occupy. We do expect that changing precipitation patterns will diminish habitat quality in some of those areas into the 2080s. So decreases in stream flow or changing timing of stream flow, because what we're expecting to see in this area is more rain on snow and and more extreme monsoon rains. Were any of those results surprising to you and your team? Yeah. Absolutely. So surprisingly, we found that that most habitat patches were not limited by warm stream temperatures because the habitat designated for species recovery is, you know, kind of high enough up in the system right now Mm -hmm. that, you know, we don't see any temperature limitations now or into the 2080s. In fact, the effect of temperature on juvenile Apache trout occupancy in particular suggested that streams currently can be too cold and model projections of stream temperature into the 2080s actually increase the amount of suitable habitat in some streams. So this suggests to us that the cold temperatures are currently limiting Apache trout distribution in some streams and that any warming may benefit them in headwater reaches, at least up until the 2080s. Right. You know, but when projections of, you know, reduced precipitation are also considered, habitat suitability only decreased in our Apache trout streams. Right. It's always more complicated than just one. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Great. Well, this brings us to the close of what we call the tough part of the interview and moves us to our final five questions. This is a group of five questions that we ask each of the guests that come on the show. The first one is, what is your favorite fish? It's it's an unfair question. (laughs) Let me get that out there right off the bat. It's, you know, it's a really tough call because there are so many very cool and delicious fish out there. (laughs) And, you know, like any good Labrador, I am food motivated. So that's definitely a part of the equation for me. But if I have to pick a fish, I would go probably, I'd go with white sturgeon. Yeah. Everything about these fish is just awesome. And, you know, they generally exist where salmon do and don't get anywhere near the TLC that Mm -hmm. salmon do. But talk about a strange group of people that work on them. Sturgeon (laughs) biologists have to be the oddest and craziest contingent of fish biologists. 
I fit in just fine when I was working on them. <laughs> yeah. Ah, surgeon never get enough love. They're very cool. <laughs> yeah. All right. Our second question is what is your favorite memory from your career so far? Well, I choose to ignore the clear direction in your question for a single <laughs> memory. Yeah. It, I guess I'd uh, I'd want to talk about a series of events that came together to sort of ultimately form a, a rewarding kind of project journey. When I started working for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, fresh out of grad school, it was for the Anadromous Fish Restoration Program in Lodi, California. AFRP at that time was charged with doubling natural production of six anadromous species, two of which were non-native striped bass and American shad, with the natives being Chinook salmon, steelhead, green sturgeon, and white sturgeon. I was working in Lodi on San Joaquin River tributaries for the program, and that pretty much meant I'd be working solely on Chinook salmon habitat restoration, which was great. But, you know, I was... I was always kind of looking at a third of the species we're supposed to be working on as, you know, our sturgeon. And anytime I would ask anyone, you know, from my agency or any others about sturgeon in the area, I was consistently told that there are no sturgeon in the San Joaquin Basin. There never have been. There never would be. If they were caught there, you know, it was an accident. They didn't mean to. They were sorry. And they'd never do it again. It was amazing to me how consistent you know, that sort of theme. I'm, I'm paraphrasing a bit. Yeah. But, you know. So about that time, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife rolled out their sturgeon angler report card, which required reporting of sturgeon capture locations, if fish were harvested or released, you know, when, where, how big. And lo and behold, anglers, you know, started reporting catching sturgeon in the San Joaquin River in, ever, in areas where everyone knew that they didn't belong. So sometime during this period, I was informed about a location near the mouth of the Stanislaw River. And the, the place name is Sturgeon Bend. But I was told it didn't mean anything. The name had nothing to do with sturgeon ever having been in the river. But, you know, that didn't make any sense to me or anybody else that thought about it. So with place names, including sturgeon and anglers reporting sturgeon, my keen investigative senses were tingling. And I, I dove into the, you know, the recesses to try to find more. And I found some historical literature showing juvenile sturgeon captured upstream of the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta on the San Joaquin side that I thought was, you know, pretty clearly indicating that spawning must have occurred upstream in the San Joaquin River or one of its tributaries. And then I started finding much older newspaper records of sturgeon caught 100 or more miles upstream and in the tributaries. And they weren't great records and didn't convince, you know, my colleagues of anything, but they got me going. So I started asking for funding to conduct some field work, hire a crew and purchase equipment to really start looking for sturgeon in the basin. And at this time, AFRP didn't do field work. We funded others to build spawning habitat in stream and improve floodplain rearing habitat for Chinook salmon. But being persistent and obnoxious, if nothing else, and over the course of a couple of years, I, I was able to get something like $60,000 for a boat and 10 or so acoustic receivers funded from my program. And at, at about that same time, there was a couple of graduate students that were capturing and tagging hundreds of white sturgeon, implanting them with acoustic transmitters far downstream in the San Francisco, San Pablo, and Sassoon Bays and working on the Sacramento side. And I was hopeful that if nothing else, you know, we might accidentally detect one of those sturgeon and really get things going. 
Mm-hmm. So I was able to get funding for field work for the spring of 2011, but wasn't authorized to hire a crew. So I started talking with another program in my office office that pretty much solely does field work. And they agreed to deploy and monitor egg mats that spring, March through May of 2011. Checked in regularly with them and everything was apparently on track and set and ready to go until late February, where I was informed that what this project really needed was a sturgeon biologist and that I was clearly not up to the task. <laughs> and they were backing out of the project. I was blindsided. Um, you know, we'd been planning this for months. We'd been checking in. They didn't need anything. At least that's what, you know, I thought I knew. Anyway, so I got that little surprise and, you know, had never heard that there was something they needed from me uh, or that anything was amiss. was only hearing that everything was handled, ready to go. And then suddenly I was told, you know, I was the problem and they weren't having any part of it. So after I, I left their office and spent some time having a strongly worded conversation with myself about the incident, I got to work. I happen to know that there was a, a program on one of our sister offices out of Red Bluff that had conducted this type of spawning surveys for green surgeon, but they were dealing with some funding shortfalls. It was actually their work I was trying to emulate. So I reached out to them and, you know, basically said, I have money in a boat and I can pay salaries and travel, but, you know, I need, I need some help. So they agreed to the, to the arrangement. And while we were late, we had our egg mats deployed by mid-April that year. And we found developing white sturgeon embryos one week after deploying the egg mats. (laughs) It was it was huge. It was about 23 kilometers upstream of Sturgeon Bend, you know, the place that apparently had nothing to do with Sturgeon. Right. So being successful within a week would have been a miraculous result, uh, you know, with no prior work in the system. But it's I think it's even more impressive considering, you know, that we missed the first six weeks of the prime spawning season. Right. We went on to detect at least six spawning events and, and tag 10 adults the following season. And somewhere in, in there, I ended up talking with Tucker Jones from Oregon DFW about our work. I'll never forget what he said to me, although I'm, I'm sure I'm paraphrasing a bit. It was something like, it'll be interesting to see if this is a locally adapted population or a relict population spawning fruitlessly in a hopelessly impacted wasteland of a river. Oh no. <laughs> I was like, how do you know so much about this river? You're, you're spot on. You know, his description isn't unfair, mm-hmm. but it and the sturgeon that use it appear to be awfully resilient and outperforming expectations. All right. So there's, there's, I think one more element of this supposed single memory Right. after detecting spawning in 2011 and 2012 around short duration, but notable increases in stream flow and surveying, but not detecting spawning during 2013 through 2015, which happened to be critically dry, really low flow years without any stream flow pulses. We put that together and I was pretty sure we knew what stream flow and temperature conditions we needed for there to be enough spawning activity that we could detect it. So in, in early March of 2016, so this single memory now has gone five years, <laughs> a storm was rolling into the San Joaquin Valley 
And we looked at the stream gauge forecasts for gauges in our study area. And we saw that we could expect stream flow to increase above this threshold we'd been talking about, the, the one that we thought was necessary to initiate spawning. And from our previous four years of tagging adults, we knew we had quite a few sturgeon and some females in downstream reaches. We thought they were staging for the right conditions to move up and spawn. So I took the extraordinarily cocky step of emailing a prediction that we would detect spawning within the next week to my CDFW counterparts. And I did so because I thought it would demonstrate much more firmly our ability to predict and make the case for managing for spawning, managing water intentionally for spawning in the future, you know, if we did succeed in capturing embryos. So in the three days following my prediction, we collected white sturgeon embryos every day. Uh, we got 52 total. And then we started really having meaningful conversations about making intentional pulse flow releases from upstream reservoirs to instigate sturgeon spawning in the San Joaquin River. Although the primary purpose for doing so, you know, will always remain improving out migration survival of Chinook salmon in the basin. But, I, you know, I wanted to make the point that we can we can work together among those resource agencies and, and intentionally make water management decisions to be helpful for all these native species that are somehow holding on in this hopelessly impacted wasteland of a river basin. Yeah, that's awesome. It's a good story for the benefit of persistence, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. You may already have this or maybe not. What is your dream job and or location? Really, really tough one, but I think I have it. I, I can't imagine doing anything else at this time. My job is really rewarding. It certainly took some time, but I think I've built strong relationships um, with my tribal counterparts and we're being really productive. I think we're getting really meaningful work accomplished unusually quickly on the government adjusted timescale. Yeah. And that's definitely leading to positive outcomes for native fish conservation and anglers. And, you know, in this job here, I get to lot, work with a lot of folks very early in their careers, about half of which are local tribal members. And it's really rewarding to get to see folks with little or no experience in natural resources management get you know, really excited about fisheries and be able to watch them grow in the profession. Yeah, absolutely. The next question is if money was on issue, what is one project you would like to work on? There's a lot, but I'm going to go with a large scale sturgeon habitat restoration and, and stream flow management project on the San Joaquin River to provide opportunities for regular biologically meaningful levels of recruitment. Mm -hmm. Great. All right. Our last question is if there's one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? Well, sort of once again, when you say one point, I hear as many points as you'd like, Zach. Um, <laughs> I, I would say work hard, be nice and assume positive intent. You know, I, I think I see too often that initiatives or projects are delayed or relationships made more difficult than necessary, you know, because folks sometimes think they're being slighted when they're not. And I definitely wish everyone was would work as hard at working hard and being nice as, you know, some do at, I guess, sort of being selfish. So just keeping in mind that we, we sure can't accomplish much alone, but we can accomplish, you know, really great things together. And, you know, maintaining productive relationships is a really big part of this field. And it's a lot harder when, you know, people are more worried about themselves or personal advancement than achieving project goals. 
But interestingly, just working hard and working together productively to achieve project goals does wonders for folks, you know, that show themselves to be selflessly interested in getting quality work done. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again for coming on the podcast today. It was great hearing about your work with Apache Trout and in the second part about your work with Surgeon as well. People want to find out more about your work with Apache Trout or get a hold of you. How could they do that? The best way is to email me at Zachary underscore Jackson at FWS.gov. Great. I will include that in the show notes. If you'd like to get a hold of me or the podcast, you can find me at KB Hindley on Twitter and the podcast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Fisheries Pod or send us an email to feedback at the fisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Katie Heinley. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, work hard, be nice, and assume positive intent. Mm-hmm.